I'm going to invite you to have a seat. And as you do, I want to dismiss Hubtown kids this morning. If you're uh, ages three to five, you are welcome to, to exit now to my right, probably your left, and head out to Hubtown kids. Parents, if you're wondering, uh, is this worth going to? I'd say, hey, you should check it out uh, this morning. Uh, they're going to be equipping uh, you and equipping your children with this truth about God, and that is that God is unchanging. Can I get an amen? Some of you guys, uh, you've, you've struggled with that in your life. Some of you ladies have struggled with that, knowing that uh, the, this, this world around us is ever-changing. Even the society, the cultural norms, everything's different, even as it was maybe five years ago or as, as soon as a year ago. What's neat is that God, though, though truth may in this world be relative, God is unchanging. He is not relative in the sense that he is dynamic. That's a wonderful truth that we can rest in this morning. We can even rest in that this morning as we look at God's word, that though we have received this some time ago, almost two millennia ago, it's not changed. It's still powerful. It's still, God is still working through the regular practice of reading and preaching his word. And so if you have your copy of God's word, I want to invite you to turn there with me to Mark chapter 10. We're going to be taking a larger chunk this morning, verses 32 to 45. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 and 45. As you're turning there, I just want to say this. You, you are incredibly blessed. Did you know that? I don't think anybody here believes that. I'm going to say it one more time. You are incredibly blessed. And I'm not saying because you get to look at me for the next two hours, because it's going to be a long, just kidding. No, I'm not saying that, although I think that you are blessed in that way, right? No, but we, you're a part of a church that has something called the equipping hour. And so you might think, well, you're overstating your point. I'm absolutely not overstating the point. At 9.15 on Sunday mornings, we have something here called the Equipping Hour. And so right in this room, uh, there are, there are f- people gathering faithfully to hear the Word of God taught and exposited. This morning, we were given some tools in relation with biblical theology that I'm telling you right now. If you were here, you're gonna be, your life will be different as a result of your time spent here. Learning how to really look at God's Word and how to unpack it. The tools that were given this morning to show, to show us how to, to look at God's word and to not err off into heresy or, or, wonder, or get lost in, in the, the details that we don't even understand, but learning how to really grapple with God's word. What a wonderful gift. I, some of the stuff that we learned this morning, I, I remember learning in Bible college. And you might say, well, I've never been able to go to something like that. I don't know that I'll ever will be. Well, again, you're so lucky. You get to be here. Am I right, Dan? Dan, shake your head. That's right. You get to be here, and so 9.15, that's a shameless plug. I'm not overstating my point. Chris does a great job. He's incredibly prepared. He's a faithful pastor, and uh, you will be blessed, and, and, and your family will be helped. Fathers, your family will be helped if you're here at 9.15 on Sunday morning. And so I'm not going to shame you into that, but you know who you are. Um, let's look at God's Word now. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45. This is what the Word of God says. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. After three days, he will rise. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I will drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. 
And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Would you, would you pray with me? Would you pray that God would bless that reading? Would you, with your hands metaphorically out, would you ask God to bless this? Father, we ask you to work in our midst this morning, not by the power of this man, but by the power of your Spirit that works mightily in us, bringing us to salvation, canceling out sin, rescuing us and redeeming us from our, the power of sin in this life, blessing us with spiritual blessings that we even now have at our disposal. God, we look to you now. Our hands are reached out in faith. Would you meet us here? We ask that this be done in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to give you an idea of what this text is about this morning. Before I do that, let me just say, if, if you are paying attention at all, there's a good chance that your toes will be stepped on. And that the Spirit of God, I'm sure, if you're willing, if you're open, if you're looking for this this morning, He will correct you. He will convict you. This is the idea that we need to take away from this text this morning, that Jesus Christ took on the form of a servant, and so should you. Jesus Christ took on the form of a servant, and so should you. I've said this before, but I think it's true today, particularly. Having read the Word of God, and me making that one statement as one exposition, really just saying what, the, what Jesus has already said, we literally could close the book, have a time of meditation, spiritual reflection, time of repentance, quietly in our seats, singing and celebrating the work of Christ revealing these things in the Word of God and the Spirit of God quickening us as we, re- as we look at this and then we could go home happy and help. But I'm a Baptist pastor, so I won't leave well enough alone. We're going to continue moving forward. But get this, Jesus Christ took on the form of a servant and so should you. You're the oldest person in this room tonight. If you're the youngest, pay attention to that. Your life, James, is about serving. That's what it's about. Bill Law, your life is about service. Christ came to this world. He condescended. He took on flesh. He died in our place. He served us. And now he calls each and every one of us to follow his example. As we walk through this text, I really want to just subdivide our little passage here into three acts. And so if if this were to be a play, uh, I don't write plays very often, and nor do I uh, edit plays and things like that. But if it were to be a play, I, I I would suggest we look at it in three acts. And so act number one is verses 32 to 34. Let's look at act number one. It opens with the disciples on the road. This happens often. Look at verse 32. It says, And they were on the, on the road going up to Jerusalem. So here, Jesus, he's with his disciples, his 12. He's with the greater disciples as well. He's along the road there going up to Jerusalem. This is the time of the Passover. So Jesus isn't alone. The road isn't uh, just sparsely populated, just them and a few, you know, uh, toads crossing the road and maybe a couple stray donkeys or whatever. No, it's, it's probably packed. Jesus is talking. People are recognizing who he is and they're walking along the way. And if you're trying to visualize the, the geography you would be better equipped to do so had you been in uh, equipping hour. Here again, here's some more shame. Just heaping it out on you. Just kidding. Invitation, no shame. But our, our brother, Pastor Chris, talked this morning about the elevation difference. Uh, I think you did this morning. Well, no, you talked a little bit about Jericho, the old Jericho and the new Jericho, just a tiny bit. Never mind. I might be getting ahead of myself here. But 
Anyway, if you're trying to put together the, the geographical differences and the terrain and things like that, uh, they're about to enter into Jericho, which is about 240 uh, meters below sea level. It's pretty, or, I'm sorry, feet below sea level. And uh, vice versa, they're heading up to uh, Jerusalem, which is 2,500 feet above sea level. And so there's a, quite a bit of elevation change and not that many miles. And so uh, I love the Bible. I love how it's so um, geographically accurate here that they're going up to Jerusalem. Anyway, I won't spend much more time on that, but they're there with a, with, a, with a crowd. And Jesus, it says, is walking with his disciples, with this greater crowd, but he's walking ahead of them. He's walking ahead of them. This is the last time that they're going to make this trek up to the holy city together. This is the last time that it'll be the 12 and Jesus. It'll be the last time that Jesus partakes of that Passover with his disciples until we, together with the disciples, take it together in the new kingdom. As Jesus' final Passover gets closer, as he nears the city, so does the week of Jesus' passion. That's why he came. The Bible clearly teaches that he came to die. So they walk up together towards Jerusalem, Jesus out in front of them. In Mark's language, it kind of posits Jesus as this eager beaver, if I can say that reverently. Typically, again, walking with his disciples, teaching them, but Mark's clearly pointing out that Jesus is not with them. He's with them in a sense, but he's out in front of them. He's with them, but he's marching ahead. He knows what is before him. Whether you recognize this or not, we sang Isaiah chapter 50 this morning. The prophecy that the Messiah would be resolute in his mission. That he would be resolute and unwavering in his passion. That he would set his face like a flint. Not backing down, determined, pressing on ahead. Not whimpering, not dragging his feet. We'll see in just a moment what he's, he knows what he's going towards. He knows what, he's, what lies ahead for him. And in fact, he'll, he'll tell them plainly for the third time in three chapters about what lies ahead for him. And yet, not like us, he presses on ahead. And it says that they were amazed. I think, speaking of the twelve. And those who followed, they're afraid. But it says, Jesus taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. Speaking of the disciples here, it says that they were amazed. And it's really, it's the same word, exactly the same word that's used to describe the disciples when Jesus told them that entering the kingdom would be incredibly difficult. And so it's it's possible that you could translate that word amazed, that the disciples were amazed as involving some sort of fear. I, it, it's possible, and yet I think it's unlikely. Maybe to some degree there's some fear mixed in, but really they're just, I think they're just in shock and awe. I think the disciples really just don't know what to think. I mean, this is the guy that calms the sea with his words. This is the guy that walks on water. This is the, this is the guy that casts out demons Demons that nobody else could cast out. This is the guy that lays hands on people and gives them their sight and calls them to stand up and walk. This is the guy that preaches like they've never heard before. This is the one that holds and has the very words of life. This is also the one that says he's going to die and rise again. And they're also the ones that are foolish. They're also the ones that are hard of hearing. They're also the ones that are very excited and, and get out ahead of themselves and put their foots in their mouths. I don't think they really know what to think. And yet here it says they're just amazed. Wow, this guy knows where he's going. Never has a man had such a clear sense of purpose in all of humanity. They're amazed. Bewildered. The greater crowd, though, that's following, they're heading up to Jerusalem, likely for the Passover, not just out taking a stroll. Oh, there's Jesus. We'll walk with him for a while. Maybe some of them are there for that. Most of them saying, hey, we're going to make our, our journey to the Passover, to Jerusalem, to celebrate the Passover there. So they're heading along, and 
They're, they're likely afraid. Why would they be afraid? Well, Jesus is believed by many, and rightfully so, to be the Messiah. But there have been different types of Messiahs. There have been different people claiming to be the God's Messiah. Maybe they're thinking, hey, if this Jesus really is the Messiah and he does what other Messiahs have done in the past, uh, they're probably going to get killed. And uh, that's crazy because this guy's pretty cool. Plus, we might get killed because we're walking with him. So I don't know. I don't know if I want to be on the same road with Jesus. I don't know if I want to be seen like walking into the same gate as him. When we get up to that like east side of Jerusalem, I tell you what, I'm going to go north. I'm going to swing around. We're going to come in a different gate. I don't want to be seen with this cat. They're a bit nervous. Less than 200 years prior to this point in time, in this point in history, was the Maccabean Revolt. And so you had this one guy, Matthias Maccabee, and he, may, he starts to lead this revolt. He's got five sons, and they do all kind of cool things. Judah Maccabee, he's, he's the big shot. He's the guy that, uh, that led the guys, led the, I don't know, the guys out into uh, to battle and all this stuff. And here's what I know. All five of those dudes died unnatural causes, right? They didn't die from old age. Maybe everybody's standing around is thinking, hey, Judah, Eleazar, they all died in battle. Jonathan, he was betrayed. He was killed. Simon was killed at a feast in Jericho, and John was seized and killed as well. I don't know if I want to, I mean, I just don't know if I want to be around the Messiah. I mean, he's a cool guy, but I'm going to keep my distance a little bit. As you can see here, there's some mixed emotions that are flooding that crowd there. Nonetheless, something exciting is happening. And in all the to-do, Jesus is walking ahead of them. He knows exactly what is to come. It's likely there as he's ahead of them, he's in prayer, he's in contemplation. But now, the Bible says he stops. In that context, as he walks ahead of them, he stops and he turns and he comes to his disciples, calls them to himself, Let's them catch up, and he says this in verse 33. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. When you hear chief priests and when you hear scribes, you, you, you shouldn't think mealy-mouthed, pocket-protector-wearing troublemakers, right? Well, they just stir things up, but they're really not a big deal. Um, that's not what you need to think when you think of these guys. You need to think powerful dudes. You need to think, like, if, if you're in their sights, like, mobster level, you need to be worried. There's a good chance that you're just going to be made to disappear, right? These are some powerful dudes. I mean, like, we look in the New Testament, and as we learn in Sunday school and things like that, now, not when Chris teaches, but we learn a little bit about how, like, oh, they're just like these punks, right? And, like, Jesus always, like, gets them, right? But these guys were bad dudes. You didn't want to be on their bad side. It says here that they had, they were going to be, Jesus was going to be delivered into their hands. But it does, Jesus, when he's speaking of himself, he doesn't speak of himself as, hey, I'm going to be first person. He speaks of himself in the third person, the son of man. Jesus, he uses that title in the Gospels, over 80 times of himself. We've spent a lot of time talking about the Son of Man, and so I won't spend a lot more this morning unpacking that, but on its face, it suggests that Jesus, primarily, this first, that he's the most notable Son of Man ever, okay? That's, it's more than that, but it's, it's no less than that. It's first that. He is the most notable Son of Man of all time. But more than that, the Son of Man actually is a messianic title, and it refers back to several Old Testament passages, particularly in Daniel chapter 7, where it says that this one, this Son of Man, he's going to be given rule over all the nations of the earth forever. So Jesus says, hey, the Son of Man, the one who's going to rule over all nations forever, that's me, I'm about to be killed i'm about to be handed over to these bad dudes i'm going to be killed but i'm going to rise again it goes on to say and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the gentiles and they'll mock him and spit on him and flog him and even kill him and after three days he will rise 
I spoke just a moment ago about the, the Old Testament prophecy of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7, but Jesus is also demonstrating the culmination of all of these prophecies fulfilled in He, fulfilled in Himself. Another prophecy that he's speaking of here that he's tying in is Isaiah chapter 50, verses 6 through 8, where it says this, I gave my back to those who strike. It says he'll be flogged. And my cheek to those who pull out the beard. I, hide, I hid not my face from disgrace and from spitting. It says here, Jesus even says that he'll be spit on. The Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. You see, Jesus believes himself rightly to be the culmination of all the Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah. They're all fulfilled in Him. He will suffer rejection as the suffering servant. He will die as the sacrificial lamb. And He will live and reign as the Son of Man. But I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the disciples as they're listening. Again, not really knowing what to think. A lot of things going around, swirling around in their mind. And Jesus is like, it's like saying, hey, hey I'm going to die. It's going to be bad. You're going to be with me a little bit of it. But I'll rise again. You know, there's something that's really alarming, but at the same time disarming about Jesus' prediction right here. Do you kind of feel that, like, it's settling and unsettling at the same time. Like the content, like all these bad things are going to happen, that's a bit unsettling. But isn't it settling at the same time that he knows that they're going to happen? Let me give you an illustration. When a doctor explains the steps that they're going to take to make an injection in your knee and you pass out, then they wake you up and they're just like, hey, it's not, this, the procedure's not even today. We're doing it in two weeks. I'm just telling you what I'm going to do. And you're like, I just can't handle it. Can you, like, give the, can, you like do, can you put me to sleep before you even explain this, right? But there is something comforting to know. Like when the doctor is explaining, like, this is what I'm going to do. Then this is going to happen. Then that's going to happen. It makes you feel maybe like, hey, this guy actually has it under control. This, this lady knows what they're doing. I can actually trust them. They've been there before. They can, in a sense, see what's going to happen. It's quite different than your loving spouse wielding a long needle attempting to reassure you, hey, we'll figure it out as we go right? That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not like, hey, I don't know what's going to happen. Could get really bad. Could, get, could be really good. I don't really know. That's not what he's saying. He's wildly specific about the details, even down to being spit upon and rising again. As Jesus shares all of this information, do you know he only gives one command in this passage, though? He only gives one command, and that is to see. That is to, to behold. That is to reckon with. It's, it's in the imperative. He's saying, see, this is going to happen. The only action step that they have, that's it. Nothing more. Just know this. Mark records the events as he does, though it sort of leads up to to giving us this impression that the disciples don't actually process Jesus' prediction in any sort of meaningful way. All they're supposed to do is see. All they're supposed to do is recognize and contemplate. We don't have any indication that they do, as you'll see in just a moment. This is the third time, as I alluded to a moment ago, in Mark's gospel where Jesus predicts his death. So in chapter 8, verse 31, and chapter 9, verse 31 as well. Do you ever find yourself talking to someone and you can tell that they didn't hear a word of what you just said? Anybody here? I was recently uh, talking uh, to my wife, and I didn't do this, nor did she do it to me, but she said, hey, I was talking to somebody, and I don't really know how long they went, but I literally zoned out, I, they, and they woke me back up as, and said, you didn't hear anything I just said, did you? And she had to admit. See, I'm telling on her, not on me. It's Father's Day. I, would, I wouldn't throw myself under the bus on Father's Day. But she had to admit, nope, I actually, I, I zoned out. I didn't hear a lot of what you just said. And we can all relate to that. We've both had that done to us. 
and we've done that to others as well. I kind of get the sense that that's what's taking place here. Let me illustrate why. Because as Act 1 closes and Act 2 opens, it doesn't even seem like the two are connected. Look at verse 35. Act 2 opens up here. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? Now, I believe that, that these verses are in chronological order. And, and there might have been more content, that, uh, more, more events that took place in between them. But I do believe that they're in chronological order. And I think at least that Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is putting these two together to show, hey, there's, there's not a connection here. Or for us to ask, what was going on in their minds? Why did, how did they get from Jesus saying he's going to die to, hey, Will you do us a favor, Jesus? It kind of sounds like somebody saying, hey, I want you to know, kids, gather around. Your mother and I, we're not going to be with you much longer. And, uh, you know, it's going to be really sad, but we're going to be leaving this world soon. And the kids just begin to fight and argue about, hey, who gets what? And uh, who's going who's gonna to settle the, these debates but, but the parents themselves? They have to intervene. Like, hey, hey break it up. That's kind of what takes place here. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they come and ask and say, what, will you do something for us, Jesus? Jesus, in his kindness, says, what do you want me to do for you? He's just shared with them what's about to happen. He knows that in just a short amount of time, all of those things will have been uh, fulfilled. And yet they don't make any comment about it. Maybe they'll ask if he's just scared. Jesus, we want to ask you a question. Are you nervous about what, what's, what's ahead of you? Jesus, we want to ask you a question. Will you do whatever we, want, whatever we say? Will you do it? Jesus, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't do that. Is that what they bring to Jesus? No. <laughs> Jesus, we want to ask you a question. Will you just promise me up front that you'll do it? You'll take care of my family. If I die with you in Jerusalem, will you, take, will, you, will you make sure that my family's taken? That's not the content. That's not what they're going after. What do they ask Jesus? I'm ashamed to even read it. Verse 37, they say to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory, Jesus. Not in our glory. That's not even a thing. In your glory. Can he sit at your right and I sit at your left? What's the connection between these two? They're vultures. They're, they're swooping in and they're trying to snag the most prominent seats there in the kingdom aside from the very throne of glory. I guess they'll be after that next, but they picture Jesus as sitting on his royal throne just surrounded by all of his disciples and all the high officials were, were James and John right there at his right and at his left. Each standing resolute, Handsome, sword at their side, scepter in hand, whatever it is. That's where they want to be. This is their concern. Jesus, here he is, the Messiah. He's on his way up to Jerusalem. He's going to reveal his messianic glory there. And they want a piece of it. They want to make sure that they get the best seats in the house. And while I said it's shameful for me to even read this, it's not because I'm ashamed of James and John. It's, as, it's because I'm ashamed of my own heart and what that text reveals about me. And so it's disheartening and it's convicting. Jesus reveals the, the very purpose and plan, his mission for coming. And they come to him with this. Can we sit at your right? Can we sit at your left? you ever find yourself in that mode though asking for things thinking of yourself consumed with your version of the kingdom and not with God's version of his kingdom have you ever found yourself in that place maybe as you're doing your your morning reading you begin to read about Psalm 37 where it says in verse 4 it says delight yourselves in the Lord as our brother Dan read this morning and if you do he will give you the desires of your heart. 
As you are meditating on that, maybe if your heart's like mine, you begin to think about the desires of your heart. You begin to make a list. Journaling was difficult for you the day before because you read something else about repentance or something like this. But here on this day, it's not easy to journal. You find yourself journaling about all the desires of your heart. And yet they're so different, likely, than what God even desires for you. It's a complete misunderstanding of that text, of that passage. Maybe you're not like me. That's my heart. That's where I'm at. So often as God reveals something, as he reveals his glory, as he reveals his purpose, as he reveals his plan, even as it includes me and my neighbors and my resources, I'm so quick to think of my own perspective and to rewrite that in a way that benefits me more or in a way that brings me more glory. But enough confession on my part. I want to ask you a question. Prayer is about asking God for things. It, prayer literally means to ask. Now, I don't mean to say that every time you pray, it's every word is asking for something, but that's what prayer means. When you pray, answer this. What do you pray for? When you pray, what do you ask for? I think that that will reveal a little bit of where your heart is at. The time that you spend with God in conversation, what are you talking about? What are you requesting of Him? Let's let James and John off the hot seat. They've put their foots in their mouth. Here it is recorded in history for us to see. Their hearts wide open revealed. What about yours? What are you asking God for? I want you to notice something as you think about that question. Last week, we read about the rich young ruler. And what does he do? He comes to Jesus. He kneels at Je- He runs to Jesus. He kneels at Jesus' feet. And what does he do? He leaves his wealth behind as he kneels at Jesus' feet, right? Metaphorically. Jesus says, hey, I, I see you left your, your wealth behind. Not willing to bring that and kneel before me? You see, that man was hiding it back and running to Jesus. Hey, tell me what to do to receive eternal life, right? He's hoping to keep what he already had to gain a little bit more, to gain something else. It's interesting as you contrast these stories. What are James and John doing? They're doing the exact opposite. They've, they don't have the wealth that the rich young ruler had. They don't have the positions of power and influence, and yet their hearts as revealed in this text, are just as wicked and desirous as the rich young rulers. They're coming to Jesus to get the thing that the rich young ruler is leaving behind or won't leave behind. What are they wanting from Jesus? What did that rich man want from Jesus? Both of their questions and subsequent answers to Jesus' questions revealed where their hearts were. Have you done that lately? Have you found yourself asking for things or focusing on things that were more about your glory and your desires than God's? This is a great time to jot that down, spend some more time reflecting on that, asking yourself that very question for the Lord to to work in your heart, maybe through some quiet time and reflection this afternoon, maybe around the dinner table this evening or throughout this week as you do family worship. That'd be a great question to go around the room and ask, where's your heart at? What do you want from God? At any rate, these disciples, they're asking for the wrong things, revealing where their hearts are actually at. And when Jesus speaks, they're not even listening and they're totally missing it. He tells them he's going to lay down his life. James and John can only think about how to raise up theirs. But I love how Jesus responds to them. Look at verse 38. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. That's kind boys, you don't even know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Often, 
parents are accused of keeping the good stuff to themselves. I don't know how founded it is, but maybe it's true. Parents uh, maybe have been known at times to tell their children falsehoods. You wouldn't like that. It's spicy. What is true, though, is that children usually anticipate that whatever their parents are imbibing on, it must taste great. Maybe you have a, an experience in your life where you're like, hey, dad loves that, mom loves that. Maybe the first time you ever tasted a little bit of wine. Is this a Baptist church even? You think, that's what mom gets all excited about? That's what the, all the rage is? Is that true? What in the world? That tastes terrible. Tastes like ogre sock water. What, why are they doing that, right? But Jesus looks at his disciples as they look at him. They're like, Jesus, we want a little bit of what you're drinking. We want a little bit of the cup. We want a little bit of the glory. We'd like to be involved in that. And Jesus says to them, you don't know what you're asking for. It's not going to taste as good as you think. Your heart's not ready. Your heart wants greatness. Your heart wants glory. You don't want what's in my cup because my cup is the cross. My cup is suffering. They didn't even know what their request was. It was to participate in Jesus' glory. It was to participate in His pain. A cup in the baptism here. A cup's a metaphor for your lot in life. That's the, the lot. That's the, that's the lot I drawed. I got the short end of the stick, whatever. That's kind of the same idea. Jesus had been given a cup, divinely appointed for him to drink. We'll talk about what that is, but Jesus already explained it. It's his passion. It's being delivered over to the scribes and to the Pharisees. It's being delivered over to the Gentiles outside of the realm of God's people. It's being spit upon and flogged and having your beard plucked out. It's being killed as a criminal and rising again. That is his cup. Good or bad, it's his lot in life. Baptism refers to really the tribulation that one faces. And Jesus was going to be baptized with fire in a sense. So for Jesus, his cup, it's filled with God's wrath. It's that wrath that God has that's stored up for his enemies. But it's been given to Jesus as he endures that wrath in our place. And his baptism would be his death. It would be his burial. It would be his resurrection. And what's beautiful here is that in some sense, yes, James and John would taste of that cup, but only because Jesus first drank of it. They'd get a taste of it. And these men, they wanted the cup of glory and they did not want the cross. And we are no different. But in the kingdom of God, there is no glory without the cross. There is no, no salvation without the suffering. And in their foolishness, they say, verse 39, we're able. Of course, of course, Jesus we can do this. Well, you probably remember that foolhardy answer that Peter gave. Hey, though everyone denies you, I will never deny you. I'd never do that. This is kind of on, the, on par with that. Yes, Jesus, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. And as I alluded to a moment ago, they would taste of the cup. They would taste of the cup of suffering, but not the same, to the same degree that Jesus would. They would taste it, and Jesus would empty it. It would be poured out on him. He would exhaust it. They ask, can we sit at your right hand and your left? And Jesus says, that's not mine to grant. It's for, it's, it's for those for whom it has been prepared. I love that. We won't spend a lot of time there, but that's Jesus submitting to the Father's will and His direction and plan and, the, and His own life there on earth. It's a great example for us, by the way. But verse 41, I love this. It's real life. And when the ten heard it, so there's 12 disciples. James and John come to Jesus. By the way, other accounts tell us they, they bring their mom with us. Did they, did they get less, do you, do you have less respect for them now? They're, they had to get their moms asked to do the asking. Hey, can my sons do this? 
but Mark, for sake of time, we've, we assume just abbreviates that. But Jesus says, hey, that's not for me to determine. That's for my father. Verse 41, it says, when the 10 heard it, the other 10, they're indignant at James and John. They're angry. Essentially, a fight breaks out there on the road to Jericho or to Jerusalem. How dare you ask Jesus for that? You know that that's my spot, Peter said. Of the, of the three, I'm the number one. Maybe another one standing, standing around, Nathaniel, somebody, I don't know. Hey, there's no such thing as the inner circle, right? I thought there was no inner circle. How, what's going on here? Why do you think, Peter, that you would get it? You're the best of the three, maybe the best of the 12. What, who are the three? Why would you even ask that? Wouldn't that be my rightful spot? Really, you're a piece of work for even asking that. They're all just arguing back and forth with each other. Why would they be so upset with each other? Why would they be so angry? Well, I can maybe just offer this. Maybe it's because they just, they got beat to it. Maybe it's simple because they're angry because they didn't get to ask that question first. See, James 4 says, answers the question that we're asking this morning. Why were they fighting? What, what was going on here? Were they just indignant that these guys were so insensitive towards Jesus and what he had just prophesied? No. The answer is found in James chapter 4. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you, disciples? What causes fights among you, married couple? What causes fights among you, brother and sister? What causes fights among you, Hagerstown Church? Is it not this, that your own personal passions are at war within you? You desire, you have your own lusts, you have your own wants, and then you don't get it. And so you ultimately murder. You covet, you can't obtain, you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you, do not a- and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. You ask wrongly, you want to spend it on your own passions. You are an adulterous people, James says. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James is saying this, the reason why you're fighting amongst yourselves, the reason why you have an inner turmoil, an inner struggle in your inner man is because of your lusts, of your own selfish desires. When you want what you want and the person sitting next to you wants what they want, they don't line up. And we hate each other. And we fight each other. This is what we're seeing happening in just a small way with the disciples. They are indignant. And it's really interesting. When you look at, when you kind of zoom out on chapter 10, and you ask, what makes the disciples angry? It's when another disciple asks if they can have a prominent seat in God's kingdom, in in, in Messiah's kingdom. But ask yourself, what makes Jesus angry? Again, the same word in English and in Greek is used here of, of their indignance, of their anger, as was Jesus's just a few verses ago. What made Jesus angry? What made Jesus indignant? When the disciples were saying, hey, Jesus ain't got time for those little babies. Keep them away. He ain't got time for that. That's what made Jesus indignant. That's what made Jesus angry. What makes the disciples angry? When they may get demoted in some sense mentally. Oh, I was supposed to be up there. I was the best. Maybe here's just another helpful question for you to write down. Husbands and wives, don't be elbowing each other as I ask it. But answer this question in your mind. What makes you angry? What makes you angry? When you go to God and you ask God, this is my prayer request, God. What you're asking for, it reveals a little bit about where you're at. It tells a little bit about your heart, and so does your anger. What do you get angry about? Is it the same type of things that makes Jesus angry? Or are they a little bit more local? A little more individually minded? You know. A little bit more about you? 
What makes me angry is when I have been inconvenienced. What makes me angry is, is when I have been slighted. What makes me angry, fill in the blank. Is that also what makes Jesus angry? So often the church, and I'm not just speaking of Hagerstown Church, but it's true of the church. So often the universal global church looks more like the verses from James, which I just read, than the unified body that Jesus described. And it's only for one reason. It's because of our personal lusts, our personal selfish desires. So scene one, act one, Walking along, Jesus' face sent like, uh, set like a flint, ready to be running and go, or go, moving towards Jerusalem. Prophesies for the third time to his brothers, to his disciples, hey, this is going to happen. Act two, no real connection by the way that the disciples respond, James and John, and they're not angry about Jesus dying. They're not angry about him being flogged and shamed and spit upon and his beard plucked out. They're not angry about any of that. They're angry that they've been slighted in some way in the kingdom. So that's act two. Curtains draw close, close to a close with the disciples in a hot debate over the brazen nerve of James and John. But then Act 3 opens up in verse 42. This is what the Bible says that Jesus said to his disciples. And by the way, luckily for them, Jesus intercedes. I, I do love that about that small side note, but Jesus doesn't leave his disciples just in their foolishness. He doesn't leave them in their sin, unchecked. I'm so glad that he doesn't do that for us, and I'm so glad that Hagerstown Church doesn't do that with each other, right? When we see each other in sin, we don't leave it unchecked. We don't leave it unchallenged, but we, we question one another. We call each other to repentance and to holiness. So that's a, that's a wonderful side note. But what does he say to them as he calls them? He, it says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It wasn't difficult for, for these men to understand what Jesus was saying here. It's not difficult for us either. Unfortunately, they and us, they, we know it all too well that, that, that some rulers, that some, in, some of our great ones, so to speak, they exercise authority in a way that doesn't lead to the flourishing of the people. A quick tour of history and the news would reveal that oppressive and overbearing rulers have never, never been in short supply. What does Jesus say as he points to that? He says, but it's not to be so among you. As a matter of fact, he's saying it in the present, as, as if it's, the way it's stated, as if it's a present fact. It's not among you. It's not so among you, although it kind of is. He's speaking it into existence. And by the way, Jesus can do that, right? He's finishing what he's started in their lives. He's, that, even that statement is sanctifying in some way. It's not so among you. He's instituting a policy. He's issuing a value statement and you would do well to pay attention. I would do well to listen. He's saying, not in my house, not in my kingdom. That's not how it works here. We've talked about this before. Jesus's kingdom is an upside down kingdom. It doesn't work like this world works. It doesn't work the same way. What do you mean by that? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 43. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. That's upside down, Jesus. You're confused. He goes on. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. Talk about countercultural. That's also unnatural for any of us. In our fallen state, in our sinful hearts, it's impossible for us to operate in that way and to really celebrate that, that whoever would be great among us would be our servant and whoever would be first among us would be slave of all. The kindest and sweetest of us, and there are some good ones here. You weren't born that way. And that's not how you operate. I've got twins. I've seen it. Yanking toys out of rightfully so that person that other baby has a toy i'm going to take the toy out of their hand and i'm going to jump up in the air and kick you with both feet down some steps 
right? That's, that's what we're about. This is unnatural for us. Jesus is saying, not in my kingdom. And I want to caution you here. You, you would do well to process what Jesus is saying less uh, in terms of a degree that you obtain and more like a description. So here's what I mean by that. If you truly want power and position, Jesus is not saying, okay, then go serve people and you'll get position and power. That's not what he's saying. Well, in a sense, he is, but that's what he's trying to do is reveal, not trying, what he is doing is revealing that the sinful heart only serves itself and that you won't be able to do that. Jesus is saying, hey, if, that's, if you seek after power and position, you'll have to abandon that in order to serve people, and then truly you'll become great. It's almost like humility. It's almost like humility, this greatness and service, right? You're like, man, I'm prideful. I need, I need to humble myself. God, would you humble me? And you start to think about all the things that God has done for you and all the gifts that he's given you, all the blessings. And it's like, man, all of a sudden you're able to speak into other people's lives. You're able to see just with a clarity of your own, your own heart and you're praising God and just seeing how great he is. And then people are like, hey, man, you're, you're a great guy. And you're like, man, you're right, I am. <laughs> and the precipice that you just climbed, you fell off, right? And you didn't even bounce at the bottom. That's kind of what we're, we're looking at here. And so if you think, well, I, okay. Some of you are thinking, all right, I want to be a great one. I want to be one with power. I'll be a servant of all. I want to be the best. I'm going to serve everybody. Everybody in this room, and you're taking notes, everybody here is going to owe me a favor by the end of this week. Maybe you're thinking that. That's not what Jesus is encouraging here. But he is saying this, hey, you want to know who the great one is in this room? It's the one that's serving. If you, if you want to know who the greatest one is, the first, it's the one that's serving everybody. By the way, that's probably not you, again. And so Jesus is not saying, hey, run up this ladder as fast as you can. Climb this mountain of service as fast as you can so you can be the top dog and fight that way. Outdo one another in love, right? That's not what he's saying. You guys think, well, now I know, how to, I know how to get the power and respect I really deserve. I'm going to start serving people. It's an argument, really, against wanting to be great. He's calling you to humility. He's calling you to service. And he's demonstrating the weakness of such a desire, the desire to be great. And he's offering something far better. And that's to serve, to live a life of service. Look at verse 45. I love this verse. Some people think it's the theme verse. It's the cornerstone, the foundation of all of Mark's gospel. Jesus says, For even the Son of Man that will rule all nations forever, even that guy came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I told you I was going to preach for two hours. All that was introduction. Uh, And so we have... Really, two ways that Jesus serves us this morning. I'm just kidding. We are winding down, but these are some big points here. I want to show you two ways that Jesus serves us this morning. The first is this, that Jesus is our ransom. That Jesus is our ransom. Verse 45, he says, I'm here. I came to give my life as a ransom for many. The idea behind this metaphor of a ransom is that one would pay the price to deliver another from something or from someone. So think prisoner, think slaves, buying somebody back, purchasing their freedom, which by the way, if you were purchased as a slave from one slave owner, you would still be a slave to some degree, they would set you free, but you would still have to, even if they did set you free, you'd, you would still be required to serve them. Price would be paid to garner your freedom for one or for many, either way. You would be ransomed. You would be released. In early church history, there arose a, a very unbiblical doctrine Uh, concerning the nature of Christ's atonement. It was called the ransom theory. It kind of sprung from this uh, verse right here. And it's an interesting theory, and it's no less detrimental. It's false. Um, 
the ransom theory. It claims that, that Jesus paid a ransom to Satan. And so that in some way Satan ruled the world and had captured by his might and power some of, of God's people. And so Jesus dies on the cross and because Satan's got his hand out saying, hey, pay me what you owe me. If you don't do so, it's over. And if you do, I'll, I'll release these people in some sense. It's uh, some version of that. Satan demands the death of Jesus, and Jesus willingly lays down his life. And, and some of that's true, but that's really not true. You see, Jesus did ransom the church. But this exchange or inter- interaction, it, it, Satan may have come to Jesus for payment, but he, he didn't receive anything like payment. He, he received a, a, a stomped head. That's what he received. A, a prophecy fulfilled of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It wasn't Jesus making a deal with Satan. Hey, I'm going to pay you this amount of money. No, it's Jesus walks away with the limp from his baptism. He walks away with, with the, the cup of God's wrath, having been drank, and the snake, the serpent, Satan himself is there with a crushed head, dead, defeated, Jesus secured our release by his passion, by his resurrection, through his ascension. He secured our freedom from sin's penalty. He secured our freedom from the power of sin. And he did that. He drank the cup that we should have drank as God's enemies. And he withstood the baptism that we should have gone through. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 6 says this, All we like sheep have gone astray. Each and every one of us, we've gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Not only have we gone our own way, but we've brought people with us. Double guilt in some sense. And what does it say? And the Lord, Yahweh, has laid on him, the suffering servant, has laid on the Messiah, the the, the Son of Man. What has he laid on him? The iniquity of us all. Christ in our place. Christ in my place. He endured all that was for me. He endured all that was for you. He drank the cup that was yours. He completely emptied it. And this is what it is. He ransomed us. He made him to, who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Why was Jesus' face set like a flint? Think about that. Why was he so determined as he walked up that steep incline to Jerusalem, knowing he would die there? Why did he do that? He came to this earth. He took on flesh. He humbled himself in this manner because he would serve and give his life for as many as would place their faith in him. It's a beautiful thing. Jesus took on humanity to serve. Why? Because life is for service. Because life is for service. One of my heroes, I'll share more about him later. My hero, that's his motto. Because life is for service. Before we move on to the second way that Jesus serves us, more than just our ransom, I want to ask you this. Has Jesus served you in that way? It says here that he gave his life as a ransom for many. I don't want to get into the, to the weeds. We could spend a long time talking about all the details involved in that, but I'm not going to get into that. I just, ask, I just want to ask you this. Has Jesus served you? In other words, have you turned from your sin and have you honestly received forgiveness from your sin? Are you experiencing freedom from sin in your life? If you have, then you have been served by Jesus. And if not, that's a question, another question worth asking. But moving on, the second way that Jesus serves us is not just by a ransom, not just by securing our freedom from sin, but he serves us as an example. Philippians chapter 2 is a beautiful passage. Write that down. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. Meditate on that this week. It'd be a great passage for, for, uh, for your uh, life group to talk about more in depth. It'd be a great passage for, for your D group, for family worship. It talks about the mind of Christ and how we are to model or to copy what he has exemplified for us. 
here's what we get by looking at the life of Christ, by looking at the example of Christ, is that even the Son of Man came to serve and not be served. And so I hope this morning that if, if you're a young person and you think that your goal in life should be to, to gain power, to gain influence, to gain money or whatever it is, to, to, to ab- ab- attain something in life, I, I hope you've been caught in that and, and been corrected. That your life is not about your glory. Even Jesus Christ's life was about serving, and so should yours. Jesus, by the way, he wasn't trying to become great. Think about that. He wasn't like, you know what? I'm doing pretty good up here in heaven. But if I took on flesh and served everybody, I would be first. I would be the preeminent one. No, 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 no. The Bible's very clear. In Colossians and in Philippians and throughout both or all the Gospels, that Jesus already was first. He already was the preeminent one. And he set those things aside to serve. You might say, well, I'm too above that. I'm too great. I'm one of the founding members of this church. I'm the father in this home. This is the Father's Day. Have you ever heard of that before? I shouldn't be serving today. Sure, fathers, take a break if it's given to you. But your life is for service. Maybe you were expecting this morning a quaint Father's Day sermonette and you didn't get one. But I'm going to give you a little sermonette here this morning for fathers. I'm going to indulge you. Look back at verse 42. This is interesting. It says, those who are considered leaders. Those who are considered, considered great among you. I think Jesus is actually throwing some shade here, if, if, if he can do so. He says, great ones, in a sense, so-called. You see, those leaders were foe. They weren't real leaders. And I'm not saying like, well, they were leaders, but they weren't really good leaders. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Like, the, the regional leaders parading around like they have all the power and that this world's about them and they know what's going, they know what's happening, they're serving the people. False. They're puppets. And I'm not even talking about conspiracy theories. They're puppets. They had to do whatever the Romans said. They're considered leaders. They're considered great ones. <laughs> oh, yeah. Fake. Yeah, pretend. Winky, winky. Ah, ah, ah. Yeah, joke. This is all a ruse. They're not in power. Furthermore, the Romans also the Gentiles that Jesus would be delivered over to. Do you see that? Do you see the, this is a divine passive, which we don't have time to get into all that, but here's what's happening. Judas did not deliver Jesus over to the scribes and the high priest. Didn't happen. Jesus said, and he prophesied this. He said, I lay my own life down. Nobody takes it from me. You think you've got me? You think you got enough people? Go home. You're drunk. You can't take me. You couldn't capture me. You're a faux leader. You're a faux great one. You have no power here. No, Jesus laid his life down. Jesus was delivered. This is what happened. What are you getting at? Well, this morning we honor fathers. This morning we say, Father, you are a great one. You're so great. And, and, and truly, where would society be? Where would even this church be if it, if it weren't for fathers? And I'm not trying to say, hey, fathers, hey, forget about Father's Day because it's just a terrible, it's a farce, it's a joke, you're not even that good. I'm not saying that, but I am saying this. Hey, consider your own life. You're being honored, fathers. Young men, you're being, in some sense, like you're looking at what this would look like. Hey, one day I'll, I'll be celebrated as a father. Are you the kind of father here? Are you like the ones that are considered fathers? Or are you really stepping up to the plate? Are you really leading? Are you really serving the way that God has called you to serve? Do you deserve the honor in some sense that you desire? Do you deserve to be given that place of honor in your own home, in your community? Obviously, I'm pointing the cannon at fathers, but it is a wide spraying cannon. It, It hits every single one of us. Are you truly serving the way that God has called you to serve? Fathers, lay your lives down for your children. Lay your lives down for your wives. Would-be fathers, young men, do you desire to be great? Young men, look at me. Do you desire to be great? Karate's great. Lifting weights, good. Athletics, wonderful. Making lots of money, tithe. 
But more than that, serve your God. Serve your church. Serve your mother. Serve your father. You want to be great? Serve your brother. Serve your sister. Serve your neighbors. Serve. 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 Lay your life down. This is what we have been called to do, each and every one of us. You want to be great? Do you want to be first? Forget about it. You want to please God? Serve. The final question for you this morning is this. Is your life, is it marked by serving? It's a good idea to spend some time in life at a funeral. Because it wakes us up. It reminds us of what, what we're heading towards. One day you'll die. And what will people say of you? Will they say, hey, his life was all about service. He loved. If so, I'm pretty sure the consensus will be, it was a great one. And maybe even first. Jesus Christ took on the form of a servant, church, and so should you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example of Jesus Christ. And though he was God, in form, in power, in his majesty, he set aside his rightful place. He condescended, took on flesh, looked like creation and not creator. And he served, even to the point of laying his life down. Father, we have an example set before us this morning. We pray that you would strengthen our resolve to be true disciples of Jesus Christ and to emulate his life and service. And Father, we would be mistaken to not celebrate not just the example that he set, but the ransom that he has been. And that he who knew no sin was made sin so that we would receive, so that we would become the righteousness of God. Jesus, we are thankful this morning that you drank that cup, you extinguished it, and now we sip it with you. And Jesus, you withstood the baptism of suffering and God's wrath and we are raised with you. We will make much of you this morning. We pray that you'd be glorified in our lives this week. And we ask that these things be done in the name of Jesus. Amen.